In mid-2012, a year after Myanmar began its transition from military rule into a fledgling democracy, Rakhine State in Western Myanmar plunged into violence. The initial trigger for the outbreak came in late May, when a group of Muslim men, reported to have been Rohingya, raped and killed an ethnic Rakhine woman in the south of the state. The Rohingya are a Muslim minority who are denied access to citizenship by the Myanmar government and referred to as Bengali by much of the country's population who believe them to be illegal immigrants from neighbouring Bangladesh. As news of the attack spread, tensions grew, particularly between the Rohingya and Rakhine communities. In retaliation for the May attack, on June 3, a group of Rakhine attacked a bus carrying a group of Muslims, killing 10 on board. Within days, violence had spread across Rakhine, and on June 10, a state of emergency was declared, giving full control to the military across the state. By the end of June, almost 100 people were dead, and tens of thousands had been displaced to what were described as temporary shelters on the outskirts of Sitwe, the state capital. After a period of relative calm, violence returned in late October of that year, leading to several more deaths and thousands more displaced. The fresh outbreak of violence brought a strong statement from then United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, who warned that continued violence would jeopardise the country's already fragile transition. By the end of October, almost 200 people had been killed and about 140,000 displaced in various parts of Rakhine, most of them Rohingya. Five years later, and despite the change from a military-backed government to a democratically elected administration led by Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, the vast majority of those 140,000 have not been allowed to return home. A year after Aung San Suu Kyi's government took power, an estimated 120,000 are living in squalid camps without access to education, healthcare or livelihoods. Despite some claiming that the 2012 violence was orchestrated by elements within the military keen on derailing the transition, observers argued that it was in fact the result of long-simmering tensions. Independent analyst Richard Horsey said there had been a long history of intercommunal tensions in Rakhine State that went back decades, perhaps even hundreds of years. I think what we saw was that under the decades of authoritarian rule, those tensions were very much pushed under the surface um, and did not evolve very often into violence. There were some violent episodes uh, in those years, but, but not very much. And I think by 2012, you had a sense that the country was really opening up. There were new opportunities, but also new threats, threats to, to, to traditional livelihoods, to traditional ways of living, and new possibilities to give voice to years of, of grievances that had been kept repressed uh, in the previous era. And I think a, a combination of all these things which led to a rising nationalism across the country, which led to a rising sense of tension between different groups, which led to a rising contestation for political power, real political power, not just elected political power, but, but power in the country, power in communities. And I think all of that upset what had been partly a, a balance and partly a suppression of, of, of historical grievances, and we saw it burst out into the open. Before 2012, Rohingya woman Arthur Begum lived in downtown Sitwe, but was displaced by the violence to Tekeping camp on the town's outskirts. Today she lives in a small bamboo shack, selling fried snacks to other camp residents. During the violence, people were setting fire to homes, and there were gunshots. So when I arrived to this camp, I was worried that I would see the same violence, and that I would die here. We never thought we would stay here so long. I thought the government would help bring us back to Sidre. I hope one day I'll be able to go home. This is the first episode in a four-part series looking into the situation in Rakhine State 
five years after the violence occurred. Episode two will analyze developments since 2012 and look at the situation on the ground today, hearing the views of Rakhine living in Sitway, displaced Rohingya, and NGO workers and analysts on the ground. Um, when Aung San Suu Kyi got el election, she, when she won election, most of the people are very expectation to her, but now also hopeless because they they have spent many uh, many things. Um, we can go home or we can guard our original place, but it's not happening in two years. So people are hopeless too. So most of the people want to go to go back home, but it's not okay. Episode 3 will take a look at the situation in northern Rakhine State, which was plunged into chaos last October when Rohingya militants attacked police outposts, killing nine officers. The attacks led to a brutal crackdown by security forces on the local Rohingya population. Security forces have been accused of using disproportionate force in their operations, including mass rape, extrajudicial killing and arbitrary arrests, but the military and government have continuously denied the accusations. Meanwhile, the emergence of the insurgency has brought fresh fears to the Rohingya and Rakhine populations living in the north of the state. This didn't have to happen. It happened uh, despite the fact that this population was actually quite difficult to radicalize, despite the fact that over years of oppression, violent uh, opposition never became the resort, the, 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 the choice of first resort. It was always kind of seen as the, as the worst option and, and never followed by a majority. And finally, episode four will take a look at what measures need to be taken to help bring an end to the misery and desperation affecting all communities in Rakhine State. Um, what we're seeing today is, is shocking. We, it should not be that way five years after this emergency. The millions of dollars that have been pumped into this. Um, but the big question is, where's the government in all of this? You know, the government are the ones that determined that these people should be kept in these camps. I'm Oliver Slow, reporting for Frontier Myanmar. This podcast was produced by Victoria Milko, with additional reporting by Sue Myatmon. Mon.